0: Welcome, everybody, to Merle's Pearls of Business Wisdom, where I, Merle, and Singer, the Relationship Miracle Worker, talk about all things relationship and how they impact the workplace. Now, instead of a particular topic today, we're going to have a fabulous guest. Yes, I love <laughs> it. <laughs> Our name is Kim Hamer, and I'm going to read her bio so I get it all right, okay? And I'm reading it off my phone, which is cool. I like that. <laughs> so on April 16, 2009, Kim Hamer witnessed her 44-year-old husband take his last breath. The outpouring and support from her coworkers, her bosses, friends, and family during his illness and following his death left an indelible impression on her. As an HR leader, Kim recognized death's profound impact on work. Leaders are ill-equipped to lead grieving teams. HR is not prepared to support leaders and employees have no direct support in managing their own grief at work. All of this causes a negative impact on engagement, mental health, and a company's revenue. Aha, let's get to the bottom line, she says. (laughs) (laughs) Using her personal and professional experience, Kim founded Workplace Grief, a wellness platform for leaders, HR, and employees. It's a one-stop shop for grief in the workplace. Hmm. She is author of A Hundred Acts of Love, A Girlfriend's Guide, to loving your friend well through cancer or loss. An invaluable and must-have life guide offering practical tips to support employees or friends experiencing life's little hiccups. <laughs> they never seem like hiccups, do they? <laughs> <laughs> and a captivating speaker. she Her stories empower audiences. To navigate the complexity of life, fostering a culture of compassion and resilience, uh, professional or personal, uh, learn more about workplace grief at, guess what, <laughs> workplace.com <laughs> <grief.com. laughs> How did you think of that for a website? <laughs> I've got to get myself up higher. <laughs> So welcome, Kim, and I guess we can tell everyone that uh, we knew each other many, many years ago and have reconnected, and I do remember, I remember you were going through, so that's how long, that's how we know how long ago it was. (laughs) I know, exactly, it's been quite a few years. (laughs) And, uh, yes, uh, Everything that affects a person that works affects the workplace.
1: It does. Yeah, it does. And I think that's something that um, workplaces are finally beginning to realize. I mean, you know, we talk about COVID and COVID causes this kind of great shift in workplaces, understanding that they have to take a more a bigger present role in their employees' lives if they want to succeed in business.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So because now they're deciding are they going to let them come back to work or no, let them stay home or insist that they come back?
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Uh, these are questions. These yeah. Are- I want to know uh, when I read that I, I, that was something I didn't know. Uh, what was it? It was about what? Uh, what did you call that? Uh, oh, duh, the thing at the bottom, <laughs> workplace greed. Yeah. So how? How? What kind of a program can you create for? For businesses.
1: So thank you for asking. It's a brand new name. Um, hopefully by the time this is out, it will be the I bought the URL. I've got to get it hooked up to my old one. So I'll be doing that hopefully later today or Friday. Um, what I do, this is morphed. For a while, I was consulting directly with companies and with managers and leaders who are dealing with employee loss right then and there. And I wanted to make sure that I had a larger impact. And I also wanted to what I also started to see were patterns. There were certain things that leaders always asked, always wanted to know, always needed support on. So that's where the platform idea came about. It's an on-demand platform that offers training and support uh, based by category to leaders. It helps HR, um, mostly HR in small, mid mid to small, small to mid-cap companies, so companies less than you know, twenty thousand people who don't necessarily have a whole system set up to support employees. It's who like de- an app. It is. It is a platform. So we're building an app that will go with it, but that probably won't be done till the end of the year. Um, so right now, what it is is a, it's a platform that, like, say Google would purchase, and then anyone, you know, we work. We work within companies current uh, learning and development training systems or we provide our own. And so what would happen is um, HR would get a call and say, hey, this employee died, most likely from the leader um, or from one of the people. And HR would go about verifying that. And then they would let the leader know and let the leader know, hey, here's some training that we have available. Here are the first three steps we want you to take. And so, and then after that, here's what we want you to think about. We're going to bring in this grief, uh, grief counselors for this many days. Here's what we want you to message to the team. Um, after you, you know, when you're in the first week, one of the biggest priorities managers have is understanding what work was that employee doing, right? We need to know what's happening. So here's how you're going to figure out what work that employee is doing. I think the, the, the platform provides that piece of it. And then there's the additional coaching that comes with it. So let's say a manager on day four is like, I don't understand these directions or I've got something that's different that I don't see being ad- addressed here. They call and they have an on-demand person there ready to support and help them through whatever difficulty there is. Um, I think what what most managers feel when someone on their team dies is they have this oh my gosh i feel horrible this person has died reaction and then they have this holy crap like i you know i need to know what this person is doing this project's going to fall apart and they feel guilty for that they feel bad like they shouldn't feel that way and what i do and what the platform does is it normalizes that so it provides a really nice mix of how to be empathetic and understanding to your team and to yourself but also how to get stuff done when it is chaotic and there's a lot of grieving happening directly on your team. So
0: is that based on the employee passing away or someone close to the employee? It's for both. Both.
1: So I have worked with leaders, helping them go back into the workforce after the death, of, after having a significant loss um, and, and employees as well. So usually what I've done in the past is I will get a call about an employee. They're coming back to work. They're really nervous about it. We have, I will coach that employee, but I will also then work with the manager and the team on making sure that they understand how this person might show up and the effects of grief and how it's going to show up in their work and how to, how to handle that during the first six to eight weeks, usually. So there's that piece of it. And then there is also the piece of an employee dying, you know, a team member dying, heart attack, car accident, suicide, all those things. And how does a manager lead a team that's grieving that loss?
0: Do you ever work with family
1: of? I do not. Um, There are, there's, there, I want to say there's so much (laughs) support, that's not true, but there is a lot of support for families. Um, And, and so, and that is not, I am not a grief specialist. I am a grief, uh, I kind of call myself like a death advisor. Um, So, (laughs) so I help companies understand how grief manifests itself and how, what they can do to to make sure that the manifestation doesn't take out the team <coughs> excuse me or decrease revenue or increase absenteeism so that's what i do there are a lot of other organizations that do support families and children not enough not enough but there are organizations that do support families and children when someone when someone when they have a significant loss
0: Uh, it's interesting. It's, uh, so how, how, what happened to you and what were you doing when your husband was ill? I mean, what job What were you doing? So
1: I was a freelance writer at that point. Um, I was writing for some small newspapers local to LA and he was diagnosed and, um, that was the first time. The second time he was diagnosed, I was starting a consulting firm helping people afford and get into private school. So we had, he was a private school administrator. We had had experience with private school. So I had this business on the side that I was trying to run while he was, I started it in between his cancer diagnosis. And um, it was extremely challenging. I had clients who you know, I had to, at one point, I had to actually pass them off to another consultant because I could not take care of them and also manage Too much in this, your head. Yeah, it was too much in my head and three kids. You know, I had, my kids were 12, 9, and 7 when he died. So they were fairly young yeah. and trying to manage their lives. Um, and my, my husband was very much a co-parent you know, he wasn't, he didn't have the kind of job that required him to leave the house at six and didn't get, he didn't get back till eight. He would leave the house at seven and be back at five. Yeah. And so he was very involved and I lost, a, you know, was my, my cousin likes to joke and say, I lost a wife, Yeah. Um. you know, but I lost him before, before he even died because the chemo really did yes. a number on his brain.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's uh How how is it? How do you go from grieving to normal life again? Mm.
1: That's a great question, Meryl. And I wish I was like, here you go. Here's steps one through 10. Just follow these and everything will be great again. Um, so I do want to talk a little bit about the, what happens in your brain when you grieve. Recently, they've been putting people in functional MRIs and they can see grief on the brain. We often think that grief is this feeling right it's this you just need to get over it well in reality there actually uh, there are things that mechanisms that occur in your brain that change so it's no longer about getting over it it is literally a brain a thing that happens grief affects your brain so it does this in in two um um in two different ways so the first thing is When we think about um, longing, we long for something and I don't, I'm trying to remember what his name is. I think it's Tantalus. He was a, he came before the Greek gods. So he was around, he was the precursor before the Greek gods, but there was a story that he was in hell. It was, you know, his Hades, whatever you call it. And he was always thirsty and always hungry. And right in front of him was a fruit tree. And he every time he'd reach to take a piece of fruit, the fruit would reach out of the way. And the water was right below him. And every time he would go to scoop up water so he could drink it, the water would recede. So he had, he constantly had this longing. When we grieve, it causes a dopamine effect on our body. Now we think dopamine is like the feel good drug, but dopamine is the longing drug. Dopamine is the, is the, not the drug, but is the, is the, is the hormone that causes us to want something, right? So addicts, they want that dopamine hit. They're craving to feel good again. So that's the first thing that happens in the brain is you get this dopamine hit. So you're craving to see the person and it's not about you craving, um, you know, you just need to get over the craving or anything else like that. It is literally about that, that you have, you're having a hit of this stuff that's causing you to crave. Now, the other thing that happens in your brain is you have, so when we think about people. We think about, if you think about anybody right now, I want you to picture anybody you care about. You sort of know where they are. And even if they're on the other side of the world, you know how to reach them. And you know if you needed to see them, you know it would take you a certain amount of time. So we've got these three concepts going. When someone dies, and that's how we map people in our brains. That's how we map animals. That's how we map our friends. You know, If we haven't seen a friend for a long time, we, we map what, where we think we saw them the last time, where we know we saw them the last time. We think about you know what we did with them the last time, and then we build these little memories around those things. So you've got these dimensions, and when somebody dies, you can't reach out to them in space and time. There's nowhere you can find them. And it causes your brain literally has to restructure itself. It has to, neurons need to reconnect in different ways for you to get past that moment. In the meantime, now you've got all these memories that you have of them. And if it's someone who's in your home every day, you are constantly building these memories, right? You're building them when they say goodbye this morning. You're building them because you're pissed because they didn't put the dishes away in this. They didn't load the dishwasher. You're building them because they left their socks on the floor. You know, you're, there's these constant memories. So, you, so when, you, when someone dies, your brain is trying to remap itself to where they reorient where they are you're having this huge longing, this desire to see them. And all of a sudden, all these memories you have of them are cut off. So you're still you're still in the memory like he was just here yesterday. He was just here last week. He was just here a month ago. So all these reoccurring memories are still there. And that to get past that takes time. Now, the neat thing, not the neat thing, but the interesting about grief is that some people don't feel as grieved as somebody else. And that usually has to do with the amount of recent memories that we have. So if a friend of mine who I haven't talked to in three years dies, I hear that he dies, I'm going to feel sad. And I'm going to feel I'm going to remember the last time we talked. But it's not going to affect me nearly as much as my other friend who just talked to him last week. So grief comes, you know, it, it affects us in different ways. That's one level. And then the other level is if we haven't, if we haven't dealt, if we had someone die in our past and we haven't dealt with that grief, that can come back. So that feeling of loss and being unhappy and being scared can return to, can can, can, can be triggered by a recent loss. So sometimes I'll hear, you know, I'll hear an employee go, I wasn't even that close to them and I'm crying like a baby. And I'll say, has anyone else died in the last five years in your life? I'm and they're like, yeah, my, my friend died. And I don't think, and we start talking and they realize, oh, I haven't, this grief that I'm feeling for my employee is actually not about this employee. It's actually about the friend. So you've got all these complicated things happening in your brain and that affects how we work. It affects how we show up. It affects our temperament. It affects our ability to focus. It affects our ability to get stuff done. And yet at work, nobody really talks about it. They usually bring in an employee assistance program, crisis management. They offer counseling for a day or two. They tell employees, hey, we have this EAP, employee assistance program. Give them a call if you're dealing with it. But most employee assistance program, you get three or four calls and that's not enough to process the grief. The other thing is that grief is it. one of the best ways you can process it is actually as a group it's really helpful to know that other people are grieving, no matter what level they're grieving on. And so it's important that a team can come together and have that space to know that we're all grieving. That actually decreases the negative sort of, I don't know if it's negative feelings, but it decreases the negative effects of grief on a workplace.
0: So that's why they have funerals or uh, uh, Jews, sit, shiva, Yes.
1: Yes. In every single society, in every single culture in the world, they have a ritual of becoming an adult and a ritual of death.
0: Wow. Because it
1: marks a transition. I haven't done the research about the birth yet and and some cultures don't they they will couple but they don't have like a wedding like we we do so that oh, that okay. is not that is not always across all cultures
0: right right that's uh that's fascinating uh, uh, another thing oh, well, so you talked about the the, the, the distance from which Uh, the time distance from you that that you last seen the person so is there a difference between uh a neighbor who you saw yesterday and your child or your mother or somebody that you you lives on the, the other coast or something
1: Yeah. So the biggest difference with the level of grief is the relationship. So it's for, for instance, I, you know, I saw my sons at Christmas. If I don't see them for six months, but I see my neighbor every day and my neighbor dies, I don't have that connection with my neighbor just because we see each other every day. So the, the, the connection is really built up over time. Right. Um, so if I'm an employee and I've worked at the same place for 17 years and I've seen this person every day or every work day for the last 17 years, that relationship is when that person's gone, yes. that's going to hurt yes. a lot. And it may actually even hurt more than your aunt yes. who died, who you don't really know very well. You see her right. at family gatherings. You don't really talk a lot. Right. So so there the the idea that someone that the level of grief is related to their to their familiar, familial relationship is not always true. And I think that's right. sometimes where companies also downgrade or don't realize how important it is to talk about when an employee dies, because we don't know, companies don't know that relationship that employee had to that's these right. people.
0: That's right. This, or to anybody. Actually. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, I want to be fair to
1: organizations. They're under a lot of stress right now. Now, yes, there are companies that are making gazillion dollars. I get it. And that's, you know, that they seem their to be job. making it on. That's their job. And, and they seem to be making it, you know, sometimes really in a good way and sometimes not in a bad way. And honestly, if we don't buy it, they don't make it. But the thing that, that that com- where was I going with this point? Um, so companies are under a lot of stress because a lot of the things that were around to support society in the 50s and 60s and 70s has is no longer around. And I think, you know, when you think about small towns and churches and, you know, communities and lodges, you know, the Lions Lodge, the Rotary Club, those were traditionally places where people could meet and support each other and build that community. Now they weren't, I'm not saying that they were the end all be all, you know, there, there were some that were, Oh, look at that. My bubble just popped. (laughs) "Ah, That's really freaky zoom. I don't, if you're listening to this, what just happened is I gave a thumbs up and then (laughs) zoom put a bubble thumbs up. So it saw, it saw me do it. And then it repeated. That was really bizarre. Okay. (laughs) technology for you. Um, so, so, and we've seen this happening at schools. You know, before your kids went to school, they were at school around eight or nine, and they were let out of school three to four. Then schools started to have to have aftercare, and then they started to have to have morning care because people were working, and they needed to work. It's not like, you know, mothers are like, yay, I want to go back to work somewhere. But people needed to work to make, to be able to live a decent life. So schools started taking on more and more responsibility. First, it was just feeding kids. Then it became feeding kids and tutors, and then it became feeding kids and doing the laundry and after school and tutors. So so right so now schools have psychologists and counselors. They have nurses. They have before care and after care for kids to take care of them all day long. And now companies are finding that they're going to have to start doing this as well. Because one, we are not, our numbers, our unemployment has never been, has not been so low for so long. right? And this has been coming for many, and HR, I know this, it's been coming for many, many years. We've seen this with the birth birth rate dropping. We knew this was coming. Um, But we kind of like, oh, it's all good. We're good. But now there's no, like, there's no getting rid of someone and finding someone to replace them right away. That doesn't, that, you know, isn't happening anymore. And so companies and now we've got a big, huge mental health crisis, which was brewing before COVID, but now has really kind of reached Gosh. the, you know, it's blown up. Exactly. We see this. We, you know, we see it with people dying and we saw it with suicides, increase in suicides. The interesting fact, Merle, the highest rate and I this was done. I saw a study last year. The group that has the most increased suicides are white males between the ages of 45 and 60. So it's even the demographic of people who we think is, are normal and okay and are feeling fine are not normal and okay. So companies are having to pick up the slack. And at first it started with, hey, we know that if we, if we measure the engagement of our employees, we can measure their productivity and their output, and we can also measure our revenue. So companies started doing that. And then diversity became a really big thing. And it was a big thing before George Floyd, but it really took off after that. Hey, we know that if they're if diverse, we're 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 going to increase our revenue by 33. You know, we're going to outperform our competitors. So diversity became a thing. Then it was well-being. And now it's mental health, right? Because well-being kind of got structured down into this mental health section. And what we're seeing is we're putting all this pressure on managers. And we're like, oh, and by the way, you got to meet your KPIs. Don't forget to get those goals done. And so managers aren't trained to deal with this. And it's just like teachers Originally, when you go to a teacher training and you graduate with teacher degree, you get a limited amount of mental health understanding, right? Your whole training is how to, how to incor how to make, how to help students learn and check for their learning so that they're ready. It is not on how do you deal with a child who is being, you know, who's not being fed at home. It's not on how do you deal with a child who's being abused. It's not on how do you deal with a child who doesn't have a home. That's not what teachers are trained on. And now some people are even saying teachers should have guns to protect against, right? So, so, so it's crazy that we we as a society are now putting this huge amount of pressure on these two things that hold our society together right now: schools and work. And it is what it is. So companies really need to start to to sit up and to and to take stock and say, okay, we need to figure out a way to support. Our whole employee, even if they don't want to bring them whole selves to work, which i I don't like that saying, but even if they don't want to bring, we still need we still need to figure out a way to support that even unseeing, unseen part of them at work. We need to figure this out, and that's why I do what I do because grief is everywhere. Where most people are carrying it around, I focus mostly on death because it's it's such a pinnacle moment. In in a career, it's a pinnacle moment for a leader. It is often, I talk to leaders all the time who say, I wish I saw you. I wish I knew you three years ago because, or 20 years ago because losing that employee was the most difficult career thing. I, most difficult leadership challenge I have ever been through. Um, (laughs) So that's why I do what I do is really narrow because it's so, it's just, it brings up so much stuff. There's great ways companies can learn to support employees um, even while, you know, and also support them through this grief process? It's a I talked thing. a lot.
0: No, no, it's good. Good. Um, I, I think uh, what you're saying is, at least it's one, we are not dealing with mental health as a society, certainly in the United States, in a way that's even close. So this is at least a piece of that.
1: Exactly. And things that the leaders learn in our platform and through coaching, they're not just for death. Leaders can continue to use those skill sets beyond just
0: this crisis. And, and I think that, that the the. Cr- Skill set is thinking about and noticing and dealing with the other person.
1: Yes, yes. It's the we're basically we're skilling leaders up to have a higher emotional intelligence. Yes, and and you know that side of it is so that there's two sides of that, right? The leader has to be willing, which usually happens when there's a death. They're out of their mind. They're crazy. They don't know what they're doing. They're open and they're willing and then they have to be able to practice it in a place that's safe and you can't make a workforce safe unless hr understands what's happening within the organization unless the leader above understands what's happening in the organization understands what's happening with the grief on the team and then they and they have that really solid knowledge like no one people don't know that grief changes your brain People feel like it's just a feeling it's not. So mm-hmm. when you provide that information for everybody, and then the, I forgot to add the one thing that we are, we also have on our platform are nudges. So, it, you know, we that all know right. that there's information, right? There's information we love to talk about, right? We were going to talk about that. We forgot yeah. about that. So, <laughs> so it's one thing to watch a video, but imagine what happens when you watch a video about how to do something, a three minute video about how to do something, and then Two hours later, you get a nudge of what was your favorite part? What's the thing you remember the most about the video? And then a day later, you get, have you implemented that thing today? And then a week later, you get another little nudge. It helps retain and helps people practice what they've learned. Because I, even with my best intentions, I have books on the shelf that I have read that I need to reread because I don't remember what's in them. I think I implemented one thing out of the 55, right? So we all need those nudges. And that's a really, that's a, that's a part of the platform that I'm very proud of um, because it's not just shoving training down your throat and here's a video and good luck. It is in the combination with the nudges and the coaching people, the leaders are retaining information that helps them through this difficult challenge, but also helps them become better leaders.
0: That sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I had one last question about grief though. So um that you didn't mention. I I observe that some people, when dealing with grief, feel guilty when they when they release that grief or when they don't when they're not bothered by it all day, every day, that they feel, they feel if they don't have that, Oh, I'm so upset about him that I didn't really love him. Her, Yeah. So how, 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 how what can you do about that?
1: I love that question, Merle. I love that because that's the, within our platform, that's something that we address um, because the shame of not feeling sad can lead to all sorts of really negative outcomes. Yeah. So making sure that it's clear, like I said, remember in the beginning, I said that leaders are like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, this person died. And then heck, I've got all these projects. (laughs) Some leaders don't like the employee that died, didn't like the employee that died. (laughs) And so they're kind of like, I mean, as bad as it sounds, I'm kind of glad because they were getting ready to be fired anyway. You know, there's there can be a sense of relief when there's a death and there's no place for leaders or employees to express that. And that's another thing that we work on in this platform. That's where the coaching comes in is because with us, with, you know, with with the coaches, it is one of these they they know grief. Right, and I make sure that they're they're executive coaches, so they're not these they're not grief coaches that are coaching executives. They're executive coaches that have that have experience that have learned how to coach in grief with grief. And one of the things that we talk about, we talk about the taboo, right? And the taboo is, phew, thank God, because that was just, you know, and when you release it. And there's no reaction to it. There's not like the you can't say that. There's none of that. When you release that, the coach goes, huh? Yeah, that must have been a real relief. It normalizes it. Yeah. And then you don't have, then you don't have the shame or the guilt that comes behind it. But again, it is really about making sure that that these topics are talked about within coaching sessions and within videos so that people know it's normal. If you don't feel anything, that may be totally normal. You may not have had a relationship with them. They may have been a total pain in their neck. You may not have liked them very much. You didn't want them dead, but you didn't like them. And and then you see this whole team grieving and you're thinking, there's something wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. So we work hard to make sure that we normalize no matter where anybody is on the spectrum. Because there's, look, even the The loss of an employee at the bare bones will affect your work, right? It'll affect your team and your work, whether it affects your work directly or affects your work because the, there's another employee on the team who's grieving the loss and you can't get the information from them. So it affects you. So just understanding that your reaction is your reaction. There's nothing wrong with it. It just is, yeah. is I think a really important part of, of what we do and what the coaches do.
0: So what about, what about the employee that had a loss a a, a true loss you know somebody close to them Mm -hmm. that they are clearly sad about but it's two weeks later three weeks later and somebody tells a joke and they laugh and it's all and then they feel guilty
1: yeah so that is where the individual coaching is really powerful. Um, I, I we start out with sort of group coaching and talking to the teams and helping them understand. Here's how grief is going to show up for y'all, like right. So it's going to show up in this way, and it's going to show up in you feeling guilty about laughing about something or laughing about somebody. So I again, I don't. But you deal... anticipate it almost. Yeah, we we just we just we just tell the aspects of it, and I think that's where a lot of um, um, EAPs fall short
0: is EAP. they come in
1: in the crisis and they come it's in an to EAP. fix, oh, employee, and employee assistance program. I knew that. So they, I know you did. <laughs> you just did it to make sure everyone else out who's listening knows what it is. Um, and so an EAP comes in and they're crisis management. So they're like, people are falling apart right now, we just had a death, it's a suicide, our team cannot work, we need someone to come in and talk to our team and just kind of calm everybody down, like just bring the chaos down a little bit. Um, some EAPs will offer individual coaching, they'll come on site and people can make appointments and you know 20 minute slots of just talking about their grief. So that's the crisis management piece. The bigger piece is that piece of, hey everybody, this is how it's going to show up over the next eight weeks, nine weeks, 12 weeks, maybe even a year from now. And one of the one of the ways we talk about that is that thing of when you, I remember when Art died, um, I had a friend who used to leave me a joke on my answering machine. Remember answering machines, Meryl? <laughs> remember when we didn't have them? <laughs>
0: um, so,
1: yes. so she would leave a joke on my answering machine every Wednesday morning. And she would always call when I was trying to get the kids ready for school. Right. And she did that on purpose. And so I would get the kids out the door and I would go to the answering machine and I would listen to the messages. And, you know, in the beginning, most of the messages were, oh my gosh, Kim, I'm so sorry. You know, if you need anything, let me know, which we'll, we can talk about really briefly is yeah. the worst thing you can say. Right. Um, you know, it's, it was all that, but she would leave these messages and I would laugh. Yeah. And... <laughs> And sometimes it was the only time during the day that I laughed.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: But understanding that laughter doesn't mean that you didn't love the person any any less. It's a moment of like just that having that life. Grief is complicated. And depending on how the person died, it becomes it could become really complicated. So that's a very long way of telling you that to laugh in a moment after someone has died is normal. There's nothing wrong with it. Somebody else may not laugh because they just can't wrap their heads around it right now. And there's nothing wrong with them. And that's normal. The point is, is to normalize reactions across the team so that no one feels guilty or ashamed for the reaction they did or didn't have.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. What was that thing you were in at? I just, I forgot. What it was. Oh,
1: if you need anything, let me know.
0: Oh yes. I want to hear about so, it. So
1: here's the thing. I have my book behind me. It's 100 acts of love, a girlfriend's guide to loving your friend through cancer or loss. And the, there's, there's several different chapters that are based on um, areas. So there's a food chapter and there's a car chapter and there's a kid chapter and there's a work chapter, all these sections of how you can help in those different sections. This tip is the only tip that has one whole chapter to itself. And I literally say, if you take nothing from this book, take this. And that is, do not say, if you need anything, let me know. Now, I know some of your audiences are like, oh, my God, I say that (laughs) all the time. I thought I was being helpful. The reality is, look, none of us has been taught what to say. Mm -hmm. We don't feel like saying I'm sorry is enough. We feel like we want to offer some support. But here's why that's not a great thing to say and any version of it is one, what is anything? Merle, as you know, I had young kids. Did anything mean that you were going to go pick up my snot nosed, sneezing toddler at preschool and bring him home? Or did anything mean, like, hey, I'll be happy to drop off a bottle of wine, right? (laughs) So anything is too big a term. And now you've put the pressure. Here's number two the reason why it's not helpful. Now you've put the pressure on the person whose life has already been turned upside down to figure out what they need. And I remember in the beginning, I had no idea what I needed. I knew meals were going to be helpful. So that was taken care of. I knew getting the kids to school would be helpful. But beyond that, I had no idea what I needed. And it was literally people who were coming and saying, hey, what about this? And I would like, that's a great idea. Let's do it. That's another great idea. That's not such a great idea. Let's not do that. So it was literally people coming forward with ideas. So so you've now inadvertently put the pressure on the person who is under great duress to figure out what anything is. Right. The Third reason it's not helpful, let's just say that they figure it out, that they say, okay, this is what I need. Right. One, they have to remember who said, if you need anything, let me know to ask them, right? And everyone's made that offer, so they have no idea. And two, you are asking them to take a huge risk. They are feeling vulnerable. They are out of their minds crazy right now. The floor has become the left wall. Right. And now you're asking them to be extremely vulnerable to ask you to do something that you may not really want to do because anything was too big and they were all aware that anything's too big and right. to risk you them hearing you say, no, you're yeah. not going to do it yeah. unless it is the only time I think that this phrase is okay is when it is your bestest friend ever. And you know, you can call her at 2 a.m. and say, hey, I need you to come hold my hair because I'm vomiting or I'm almost at a pasta right now. Can you run to the store? Right. So those are the those are the only people who you can say, if you need anything, let me know. Mm -hmm. Everyone else, the best thing you can do, the very, very, very best thing you can do is be specific on how you can help and ask and offer more than once. Because I turned people down a lot. And then finally one day I needed that thing and I knew exactly who to call. So don't think just because you offered once that they don't need it. Offer more than once. Offer a couple times. Call them up. My favorite, One of my favorite tips is call up someone on your way to the grocery store and say, I am going to the grocery store. Look into your fridge and tell me what five things are you almost out of and I'll pick them up for you and drop them off. Right? So it's a very, it's a finite ask very specific. You're also know, you're letting them know you're not going to hang out. You don't need to. You're giving them the option to invite you into their home if they want to. But if they don't want to, I will drop them off, right? So literally, it's a, here's your bag. Love you so much. Mm, hope everything's okay. Bye, right? That is one of the best ways that you can support is be specific and let them know you're going to come in, do that thing, and then get the heck out. Because- asking for help. We're not good at that. We've never been good at that. We're not good at that as a country. I don't think we're good at that in third world and in, 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 you know, in first world countries, you know, they're not good at it in France and Germany either, you know. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's really being very aware that when we when we put the pressure on the person to come to us to ask for help, chances are they are not going to come. They just aren't going to come. And then the last thing I always say is we all have helping superpowers, things that we're really good at, and we, don't, we just haven't recognized them. And so for me, I am not a cook. Do not ask me to bring you a meal. I get stressed out just thinking about putting meals together, like even for myself. But if you need something from the grocery store and right. it, needs, it, needs to be, it needs to be ordered, I'm your gal. I will go to the grocery store. I will meet that truck at 5 a.m. to make sure that you have that thing that you have. Okay. So we all have our superpowers. And sometimes they're making Excel spreadsheets, right? They're putting to they're telling, pulling data and making being able to make a really beautiful graph based on the data. Sometimes it's leading meetings. Sometimes our, you know, our our strength is telling stories. Sometimes our strength is cleaning a kitchen. If we're really good at, we really like it, that's a great offer to make. I would love to come over and clean your kitchen after dinner next week on Wednesday. Right. So we all have helping superpowers and usually they're found in the things that we, the day-to-day things that we do that we actually don't mind doing that we enjoy. So that's what I'd like to leave with your audience.
0: I think that's, I think that's brilliant. I certainly have said, if you need any help, Mm-hmm. And I certainly, and I'm listening to you and saying, oh, I'm supposed to tell her, him, what help I can offer. Oh, I have no idea what that is. Exactly. I, I will have to sit and think about, I have uh, actually a, clo- a a really good neighbor that has just passed on Sunday. Oh. And... um It's, uh, I it, mean, there is, what can, what can you say? And I don't, I don't, I don't know how I can help her husband.
1: I think one of the best ways, things you can do just off the top of my head is not now, but in three weeks, four weeks, even six weeks, go over and talk about her yeah. to him. Yeah. Remember that time we did that thing? I was just having these memories about her. And remember that time we did that thing? And he will probably cry. yeah. But he'll be crying for two reasons. One, because he'll miss her. But two, because he will realize that he's not the only one. Yeah. And that's what makes grief so isolating is we forget, you know, this big thing has happened in our lives. And we think we're the only ones. I love it. 10 years after Art died, one of his classmates reached out to me. I, you know, He just found out. And he told me this hysterical story about Art. I cherish that story. I love that story. And I love it because it's, it was very much an art story. But I also love it because it meant that he misses him too. On some level, he thinks about him. Yes. And that, that makes me feel less alone. It's not just my loss anymore. It's yeah. our loss.
0: And yeah. that makes a big difference. It does make a big difference. Yeah. You know, how can mm-hmm. we talking about such seemingly down things? And they are downer things, but, but they're but that that's that is the mystery of life. Is look. The- we're all dying. I mean
1: <laughs> I remember watching this this video of this like ninety-year-old like woman and she's like she's like, you know you're, you're, you're dying. And, and she's like, I've been dying since I've been born. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And I, yeah, it is an uncomfortable topic. And it's also one where we have so much power and ability to help and support others. Yes, and that's why I talk about. I want to bring back. I want people to feel the joy of knowing that they did something that helped another person.
0: Yeah. Amen. 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 I, I I think uh, that's a, an appropriate conclusion <laughs> for <our laughs> wonderful conversation. Uh, but before we go, perhaps we can change the top, the tenor topic, whatever. Let's uh, sing something, really, <laughs> Bobby, <laughs> and and uh, but talk about. You said you you just renamed this grief. What what is it? So I, my, my
1: 100actsoflove.com is my website, and that will remain my website because that's where the information about the book and more personal about loss will be. But I now have a new website called Workplace Grief, and that's where organizations can go to understand more about the platform and how we can support them um, dealing with employee loss. And you know, one of the ways I serve organizations is we put together a leadership and death playbook so we put together this sort of it's not actually a book, but we put together this this training so that leaders know where to go when there's a loss. So that workplacegrief.com will be that section of that part of the business.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And it will be up and running. By, I will I'm by, hoping to have it connected by tomorrow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. by the time we we uh, go live. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That's awesome. Okay. (laughs) So I'm going to go to my audience and thank them for listening to Merle's Pearls of Business Wisdom with me, your host, Merle M. Singer, the Relationship Miracle Worker. (laughs) (laughs) And you can find this episode and all past episodes on com slash podcast. But you can, that, if that's easiest, fine. Otherwise, go to Apple or Amazon Music or Spotify, whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on, and listen and look for Merle's Pearls of Business Wisdom, and you will find this episode with Kim Hamer. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Bye, everybody.
1: Bye, oh, everyone. Merle, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. It's great to reconnect.
0: It was. Yes, it is.